You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. Kilby Salmon is watching his reflection in the window of his office. The picture isn't great. Every other minute, the same Cortina screams past, dazzling him with its headlights and erasing his mirrored face. His office isn't great either. It comes to around nine square feet, which means standing room only. No desk, no chair, no computer. Nobody in 1979 has a computer. Not even in this 1979. There is a phone, at least. A phone and a wall of postcard pornography, offering services of which even Kilby lives in happy ignorance. He listens to the dial tone, ignoring the bloke in the cloth cap who is waiting outside, knocking every now and then on the office door. Kilby has eyes only for his reflection. It is hard to be sure in this light, but he is convinced his hairline is becoming unreliable. When he holds back his quiff, the curve of his scalp seems to shine in the streetlight with a sour new pride. That's a definite retreat. He mutters, a farmer could stick a ribbon on that forehead. It's doubled inside a month. Jesus. Hello? The voice is in his ear. The 5P clunks into the guts of the payphone. Kilby remembers why he is there and shuffles through the curled folio of posters he has shoved on the shelf beneath the postcard pawn. Mrs Johnston? Mrs Billington? The voice in his ear is aged but sharp. Like a hard cheese, Kilby decides. That amuses him. Something usually does. Of course you are. Kilby shuffles the posters again until he finds the right one. I'm calling about your cat. Tickles? Very possibly. More specifically, I'm calling about the reward. The cloth cap raps on the phone box door for the eleventh time. How much longer are you going to be? There's a man in 1963 who's expecting my call. Tickles. Kilby finds the right poster, a photocopy of a happy pensioner clutching a grim-looking tabby. The poster says £25, is that correct? The static on the line resolves into a tinny cough. <clears throat> I didn't know Tickles had won an award. Are you from the council? Uh, no. And I'm afraid Tickles hasn't won an award. Oh dear, he'll be very disappointed. The rapping on the door starts up again. You've been in there best part of an hour, by my reckoning. Same most nights. This is a public phone, you know, for use of the public. That's me. I'm the public, and I need to use this phone. Kilby cups a hand over the mouthpiece and gives the cloth cap a smile. He gives everyone that smile. A top row of straight teeth and a boozy looseness in the cheeks, like he's just found himself a joke and can't wait to share it. It's a good smile. Sometimes it works. I'll be with you in a moment, he says. Oh, I... Which moment is that, then? Kilby gives the man his back, and the smile disappears. Let me start again, he says to the phone. I believe you've lost your cat. Well, I have some good news. I believe I've found him. In fact, I've strong empirical evidence that I have found him. I also have a copy of your poster promising a reward for his return. A reward for Tickles? The reward would be for me, on your cat's safe return. Return from where? From his travels... He hasn't travelled anywhere. I'm looking at him right now. Kilby frowns. The rapping starts up again behind him. He ignores it. He checks the watch on his left wrist, then the one on his right, and does some fairly basic mathematics that, now he thinks about it, he should have done earlier. 
He clears his throat. <clears throat> For the sake of clarity, you're telling me you haven't lost your cat? I have not. He is with you this moment in body and spirit. Tickles never goes out much on Tuesdays. I'm home all day, you see. The rapping grows louder. Kilby gives up on diplomacy and starts flipping the V's with his free hand. So it's Tuesday where you are, Mrs. Parmesan. Billington, of course it's Tuesday, all day. Are you sure you're not from the council? Enraged by the V's, the cloth cat is now trying to wrench the door open. Kilby does his best to hold it shut with his free hand. As he does so, a shrill ringing kicks off from somewhere in the booth. He looks at the phone in some confusion, but soon traces the source to his right coat pocket. A compact red alarm clock is buzzing, a post-it note fixed to its scratched face. He looks at the clock in a different sort of confusion, but not for long. I wasn't planning on being from the council, he says through gritted teeth, straining with the effort of holding the door closed, but I am open to the possibility. The phone receiver is squeezed between his chin and shoulder. The cloth cap is shouting. The alarm continues to ring. A sense of calm descends over him. He loves these moments of panic. The more impossible things become, the easier it is to think. The cortina flies past and Kilby's face reappears. He stares at his hairline, lit gold by the phone booth bulb. It looks fine. One last question. If you were to miss late tickles, not on a Tuesday, obviously, but in the near future, a Thursday, for example, would you consider £25 to be a fair reward, or would you be prepared to go higher? The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Book One, How to Disappear Completely Written and Performed by Mike Barber. Episode 7 Nero doesn't have a lot more to say. He glances up regretfully every couple of minutes as Theo ekes out her pint, seeming to hope that she would have found somewhere better to be. She doesn't take this personally, as it is the same look he seems to give everyone, a look that says, Yes, here was the exact sort of trouble he has been worried about. The man in the Panama hat is still lurking at the bar, every now and then casting a hurt look in Nero's direction. Was there something wrong with him? Nero looks up at her, part fierce, part confused, as if sure he has made some mistake in believing she has said something. The man at the bar? He wanted to talk to your friend. Wanted to be a client, didn't he? Don't you want clients? I didn't like him. Nobody gets to Kilby if I don't like them. To Theo, this sounds like a challenge. Okay, so what do I have to do to make you like me? In the silence that follows, her strategy becomes desperate. We're not talking nudes, are we? That sounds needier than either of them wants. There was supposed to be a joke in there, Theo thinks, so she keeps digging for it. I don't have any nudes, although I did once make photocopies of my breasts. They got jammed. At the photocopies, not my breasts. I still have them. My breasts, not the photocopies. I think someone in the office had an interesting Monday morning. A bit embarrassing, really, but it was the last day of school. Nero is looking at her with what might be puzzlement, but is more likely disgust. Theo clears her throat. Should I try talking about literally anything else? It is now that a prime example of the exact sort of trouble Nero has been expecting arrives back with his remaining half-pint of bitter. Most of it seems to have sloshed across the right cuff of his coat, 
This trouble is looking considerably more flustered than he had been last time, looking breathlessly over his tweed shoulder. Pretending that nobody has noticed, he gives Theo the same smile he gave her last time, a hopeful, searching kind of smile, and drops down on the bench beside her. Thursday, he says, seemingly to his pint. Nero looks up from the book he has not yet returned to, frowns and gives a sage nod. Close enough. Not for Mr Tickles. You don't know how embarrassing it is to be early. Also, there's a man outside on the cobbles, cloth cap, no whippet, who would like a word with you. What about? Something about common decency, falling standards. He tried to explain it to me, but I said it was more your area of expertise. His left eye is sore. How sore? Kilby sharpens his right index finger into three inches of violence. About this sore? Nero stuffs his book into his coat pocket. Stone me, Kilby! You can't just... Recognising a pointless argument, he drops it. I suppose you're expecting me to give him a slap. If that would end the conversation, while we're on the subject... Reaching into his coat pocket, he extracts a red alarm clock and plonks it on the bar top. One of your interventions? I told you, we've got a meet. You know, I am capable of my own timekeeping. Hypothetically. He laughs at Nero, at himself, or at a joke nobody else sees. Hello, are you my ten o'clock? Theo has been so bewildered by the past half-minute that it takes her most of another to realise Kilby is talking to her. It isn't just the nonsense the two have been passing between them like a double act retreading an old sketch, but the vision of the pair together. She knows these men. A memory is within her reach, waiting for her to call its name. She ain't anything o'clock, Nero says. She just turned up with a card. Promising. Kilby has kept his eyes on Theo. Now he hands her his best smile. He's making an effort, even if it doesn't look like one. Who are you? That smile takes Theo off guard. He's so easy with her that it makes her feel overcomplicated. She tries to remember why she is here and, for a moment, forgets her own name. Jones, she manages. Shakes her head, starts again. Theodora Jones. She shakes her head once more. Theo! Have we met Theodora Jones? Jones, I I mean, Theo, and yes, about five minutes ago? Not before then. I I don't think so. Good. Excellent. He takes a sip of his pint. It's reaching that stage of the evening where everyone starts looking familiar. Are you here on business? Theo is about to say that actually she is there on very personal matters, but remembers the card in her coat. Time travellers, thieves, detectives. She wonders which Kilby thinks she is expecting. I suppose it might be business? Your business, I mean. Remember your ten o'clock, Nero says. Kilby ignores him. Good, excellent, again. But we've definitely never met. There have been boys who have looked at Theo with patience, some with tolerance, some with interest, most of them looking at her for as long as it took them to get into her knickers. None of them have looked at her with the sort of searching attention Kilby now gives her. It is the kind of interest that, under other circumstances, might have dimmed the lights. No, she says, although you do look familiar. Both of you do. It really must be that stage of the evening. Kilby switches off his interest so abruptly that Theo feels a sudden chill and decides to notice Nero tapping the face of his right-hand wristwatch. Where is he? At the bar, getting twitchy. Theo follows Nero's nod back towards the bar, where an immensely fat man in a tuxedo is slumped over a disappointing martini. 
He is sitting with his back to her, revealing a vast and lumpy profile, his dark hair and moustache sparkling with brilliantine. Okay, Kuby says. Hand it over. I'll bring it. No need for that. I'll do the talking. We don't want to swamp him. How am I going to swamp him? I don't swamp people. You do. You have a very moist personality. I am not moist. Kilby holds out his hand. Come on, then. Don't keep him waiting. I ain't the one who... <clears throat> Another argument is dropped to the sticky carpet. Nero reaches beneath the table and, with a martyred air, lifts a large rectangle wrapped in brown paper. Jumping up from his stool, Kilby shoves it into his left armpit and takes it and what remains of his pint across to the fat man. Nero watches him go. And don't forget the readies, he says to his partner's tweed back. I'll be counting them. Turning back, he seems surprised and, a little disappointed, to find Theo watching him. Readies, she says. Bunts. Dosh. Cash. Okay, but what's in the parcel? For a moment, it seems like Nero might tell her, but he catches himself and sits back on his stool. The book comes out again. Nothing I should be advertising. Theo turns her attention back to Kilby. Reaching the bar, he offers his hand, but when the man doesn't take it, Kilby somehow manages to look like he hadn't wanted to shake hands in the first place. His hand turns on its side, becoming an expansive gesture, the sort of flourish a thespian would deploy before a grand soliloquy. He lounges, smooth and liquid, pouring out smiles, but the man, from what Theo can see of him, is immune to his charms. He snaps his fingers at the package, and when Kilby attempts a brief presentation ceremony, snatches it up and tears at the paper revealing an oil painting in ornate frame. Theo is surprised to realise she recognises it, though it takes her a few seconds to know why. This painting was on the front of yesterday's newspaper, a Hogarth stolen from some museum or other. Pleased with his package, the fat man shoves the frame into a waiting leather satchel, dumps a thick brown envelope on the table, and begins the arduous process of extracting himself and his loot from the booth. Kilby returns, radiant with delight, which is only mildly dented by Nero clicking his fingers until Kilby surrenders the envelope. Nero shoves it into his fur coat and returns to his book. Watching him press the cover to the bar top, Theo sees enough to realise it is an old quiz book, the world's best pub quiz, volume three. That painting, Theo says. I read about it in the paper yesterday. It was stolen from a museum? Private collector, actually. Did you steal it? We're not big on binaries here. It doesn't matter who stole it. The important thing is it was stolen. That man you met, is he going to return it? Kilby chokes on a mouthful of beer. <laughs> what? <clears throat> no. No, the, the important thing, uh, the other important thing, is it's never seen again. Why is that important? Because that way we're not seen to change anything. Anyway, that's old business. He cracks his long fingers. Let's talk about us. Us? Yes. Let's talk about what you're going to pay me to find your boyfriend. Theo hears her teeth click shut. How did you... But she's already looking back to the bar, where Constance is watching her, polishing another glass. She gives Theo a theatrical wink. I see word gets around. Theo realises Kilby is watching her, tapping out a cigarette from a soft pack. He's waiting for her to talk, to ask questions he is already expecting, to embarrass herself with her ignorance. That isn't going to work for her. Theo reaches into her duffel coat and takes out the business card Nero had given her. Detectives? Thieves? Time travellers? Which one are you? Oh, it depends on the pay scale. It's a joke. Right, you'd think that, wouldn't you? Unless you were deranged or desperate, and therein lies the brilliance of the card. 
brilliance? Kilby's palms open in Theo's direction. Deranged and desperate pretty much sums up our client list. Already Theo can sense how much this boy will irritate her. His confidence, the way he sinks back into a chair like it was designed for his arse alone. His eyes have a still way of watching her, like he has already seen the joke and is waiting for her to catch up. You think that's me, Theo says, deranged and desperate. Kilby grins again, his long face creasing along well-practiced lines into a skillful arrangement of teeth and cheekbones. A hand messes his already messy hair until it flops in a scruffy frame. I'm guessing Nero gave you that card? Kilby says. He says he didn't. Well, don't listen to him. If he gave you that card, it means I want to see you. Why don't you tell me why? How should I know why you want to see me? I should have known it was a boyfriend job. At first glance, I thought it was you. What was me? Who had gone missing? Why would I need a detective if I'd gone missing? To find where you were going. You wouldn't be the first one through here today. People the real world hasn't worked out for, so they want to flee and live in a safe bubble of the past. Wherever you want to disappear, we'll find it for you. Nostalgia's big business. We had a bloke last week who wanted to be a vet in 1930s Yorkshire, but Nero won't go north of Tottenham. Brummies, Nero says, darkly. Of course, the past is never quite what you're expecting. Not in the manners, leastways. Theo tries to look like none of this is news to her. Manners, bubbles of the past, Yorkshire, old hat, all of it. Is that where Josh has gone? Onto a manor? Possibly. Why do you care? This is the second time tonight Theo has heard that question, but it still trips her up, seeming not so much impolite as sacrilegious. It should be unquestionable that she would look for her boyfriend should he disappear. But once the rightness of that has been questioned, her motives in being here become murky. The truth is, she has spent more time resenting Josh these last months than loving him. She hadn't wanted him to come in the first place, except she must have, because he did. She could have said no, bought her tickets, and slipped away. It was more than tenderness and not just cowardice. Josh came to London because, on some level, Theo had allowed it. He was a door she wasn't ready to close. Maybe I feel responsible for him, she says. Kilby's eyelids flicker with impatience, but the smile remains. Let me rephrase that. Tell me why I care. You said you were interested. That's why Nero gave me the card. I will be interested, just not yet. Keep talking. Theo tells Kilby about her day. The empty room, the dead body, the policeman, Nero with his Polaroids. She tells him more than that, unpacking the last weeks for symptoms of wrongness. Nothing has been right since she arrived. She sees that now. Her jobs, starting and stopping her five or six flatmates. <laughs> Sorry, Kilby stops her. He has been listening with professional patience, sipping slowly at his pint. Now he sits forward on his bench. Five or six. There's a guy who lives in the box room, but I've never seen him. I'm not sure anybody else has either. Nobody seems to be able to agree on what he does or even looks like. Josh says... <sighs> Theo lets the sentence drop, feeling herself getting sidetracked. She worries Kilby isn't taking her seriously, that he is looking for a distraction rather than the point. Is any of this important? Kilby shrugs. Who can say? On the face of it, it seems pretty straightforward. Your boyfriend has disappeared. Yeah, I noticed. You know that's why I'm here. But I use the term disappeared in a very particular sense. Everything that your boyfriend is, or will be, has been excised from history. By rights, even you should have forgotten about him. That's what the policeman said, by rights. Policeman? I think he was a policeman. Uh, forget the policeman. There are laws about this kind of thing. But we won't be worrying about them. Kilby's blue eyes shine with mischief. This man who was murdered, your boyfriend's boss, was he important? I don't know, he was a junior minister. I'm not even sure what his 
portfolio was. Something to do with the police, I think. National security. You don't think it was your boyfriend who killed him? And that's what they always say. Nobody believes anyone could be a killer, but it's true. I, I never saw Josh care enough about anything. He didn't even want to come to London, not really. An apostrophe of blue smoke marks the corner of Kilby's smirk. He's too apathetic to be a killer. Yes, no. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what you're saying. I don't understand anything. All I want to know is where Josh has gone. You going to help me or not? <laughs> Kilby laughs once, impressed or amused by her directness. Theo has the feeling that each gesture, every expression, is carefully measured. He knows when he is being charming, knows the worth of his posh voice, and is shameless in taking advantage. Lighting another cigarette, he offers Theo the pack. She isn't ready to take anything from him. This is meant as a gesture of defiance. Too late, she realises Kilby has read it as petulance, and claimed it as a victory. Or maybe he hasn't. Maybe she needs to learn it isn't normal to award points in every conversation. Well, obviously I'm going to help you, otherwise you wouldn't have that card. And uh, from where I'm sitting, your case already has several intriguing and potentially very expensive attributes. What does that mean? It means, Miss Jones, that you've come to the right place. So let's talk turkey. I'll be happy to provide you with an itemised account, but broadly speaking, factoring and travel costs and other overheads, we're probably looking at three... Kilby glances at Nero, who, without looking up from his quiz book, unfolds four fingers. Uh, four thousand. Four thousand pounds? Nero unfolds his thumb. Plus expenses. Theo works some impossible mathematics, turning numbers over in the hope they might disappear. They don't. I don't have four thousand pounds. I'd have to call home. She tries to picture that call. She tries to imagine an explanation. It can't be done. Well, there's another option, Kilby says. I'm listening. You sell me your future. I'm sorry? Not all of them, obviously. Just one of them. One of the better ones, but not a charity. Theo looks at her thumb. There was a girl at the bus stop, she says. She said she wanted a moment of my time, like it was some kind of trade. Pfft, amateur hour. Simple party trick. She took a single possible moment from your near future, whatever might have happened to you, will now happen to her. Probably. A twenty-pound note in the gutter. That's not what you're talking about. No. I know a top-shelf soulsmith. He'll isolate one potential future, an entire strand, and give us top dollar. Well, give me. And what happens to me, then, if I don't have a future? Well, you do have a future. Hundreds or thousands of other futures, just not that one. Which one? Whichever one you sell me. Kilby pinches at the bridge of his nose. Listen, this is starting to give me a headache. Give you a headache? This is mental. Well, of course it is. Look, if I were you, I'd just forget all about it. Go home, return to your quiet little life, and chances are you'll forget all about this boyfriend of yours, to be honest. His voice drops away. To be honest, what? Uh, no, no, it's nothing. Just... Kilby squints at her through a sudden astigmatism. I deal with these sort of disappearances all the time. What sort of disappearances, exactly? Well, the fact is, it's unusual you still remember him at all. I hate to get sentimental, but... Well, you must have really loved him. Theo swallows. Is that true? She wants it to be. Do we have to use the past tense? I just mean everyone else forgot him. Everyone except you. Well, that has to mean something. He has to mean something. Without meaning to, Theo finds herself believing every word. Of course she loves him, whatever she has told herself. Something like relief floods through her. She has wanted to believe this for so long. 
She wants to be in love. Love seems a far nobler motivation than guilt. When you were lost, I knew I loved you. I knew I would do anything to find you. She is pleased, of course. Finally, she has an answer to that question. She wants to be true. In the smallest of voices, she hears herself say, I just want to talk to him. I need to. I want you to take me to him. Kilby nods, doing a good impression of sympathy. No, look, I think I've said too much. I haven't, I haven't been fair. Maybe you need some time to think this over. Come back tomorrow, and you know where he's gone, don't you? Well, I know where you left him, but there's no saying where he is now. Or who he is, for that matter. Who? Like I said, Jones, all things being proper, you should have forgotten him. Theo, Theo says, weakly. She feels he is dizzying her on purpose, switching between sense and nonsense, business and reluctance. But I haven't forgotten him, which you said was unusual, didn't you? So maybe I can find him, maybe it isn't too late. Kilby straightens his tie, considering. You did remember him when others wouldn't. So he is important to you? Yes, of course. And you'd do whatever you can to get him back? You know I would. A smile, slow and patient. Well then, let's get cracking. He stands with a flourish of triumph and almost immediately vanishes. Which is to say, he doesn't vanish. He drops to a crouch beneath the table with such urgency that he rattles every glass atop it. Theo doesn't say anything. There is a pantomime quality to this disappearance that seems to demand a response from the audience. He's behind you! Oh, no, he isn't! She isn't in the mood. Nero looks up over his book. His expression is that of a child being served broccoli for the third time in a week. With mounting disappointment, he glances towards the door, not for long enough to be noticed, but long enough to size up the two men there. You ain't serious. It's a misunderstanding, Kilby says from beneath the table. Feel free to explain it to them. You promised. It was just a promise, more a statement of ideals. It turns out I'm a realist. How much? Maybe 85% realist. I need to leave a bit of room for hope. Nero clears his throat. <clears> How <throat> much this time? Oh, uh, just a bit. Which bit? The last bit? You ain't got the last bit. Well, that information hadn't reached them. Have they seen me? Theo looks over to the door where she sees two men, both of them, in what seemed to be grubby Shakespearean costume, like bit players left out in the rain. The taller has long, dark and unwashed hair, a greasy goatee and a daft, puppyish expression. He looks around the pub as if at once bewildered and excited by it. The shorter man has blonde hair slicked brown, ginger stubble, and a cat's cynicism. He looks only at Theo looking at him. One hand goes to the sword at his waist, the other jabs a finger in her direction. They do seem to be coming this way, Theo says. She peers down to measure Kilby's response, but he isn't there. He has scuttled out from beneath the table with the clear intent of beetling his way to the exit. As it is, he makes it halfway to the nearest table before colliding with a pair of tweed kneecaps. These belong to a man in a flat cap who is clutching a hand over his left eye. With his free hand, he prods Kilby's shoulder. Excuse me, I would like a word with you. Kilby bounces up onto his air-cushioned soles. Perfect, he says, grinning, and headbutts the man so hard that his victim reels backwards and sprawls across the neighbouring table of picks. Whiskey and ale slosh everywhere, spoiling an absorbing game of dominoes. The spell of the game broken, the picks, or six of them, stand up looking for entertainment elsewhere. Kilby sizes them up, counts them twice, 
and taps his forehead in a minimalist salute. Lads, I think I'm going to have to refer you on. Turning back to his table, he gives a chivalrous sweep of his hand, laying a path for Nero as if opening a door. All yours, matey. Theo has never seen a pub brawl before, but that hardly matters. This is no ordinary pub brawl. Her first thought is how fast everything happens, and soon afterwards, how slowly. Nero clears the booth in a single movement, quick as a leopard. His book evaporates. The air itself seems to step aside. Between one second and another, he appears between Kilby and a Pict. In the same semi-moment, he has his fingers in the other man's tartan tunic, lifting him off the ground with surprising strength and throwing him backwards over a table to his left. Vikings leap to their feet as warm mead splashes into their laps. The bit players by the door are running now, pushing aside punters who are waking up from revelry and getting to their feet, sending a Barney. Looking for Kilby, Nero realises the man in the flat cap, the man writhing on the table with a bloodied nose, has not come alone. A group of young men in tweed waistcoats and peaked caps advance with menacing slowness. The leader thumps his palm with a truncheon. Nero staggers backwards, the leader swipes at him. Nero ducks, comes up again, and drives his head into the man's gut. The man doubles over, swearing, and crashes into a table of legionaries. Red wine lashes, stained tunics all round. After that, it gets messy. Chaos spreads out across the pub like a slow and violent Mexican wave. Table after table erupt into gleeful brutality, as if they'd been waiting in hope for it. It no longer matters who was punching or being punched. The devastation is total. Chairs smashed, upholstery slashed, pint glasses flying and exploding against walls and pillars and skulls. A bloke in armour ends up in the fireplace, releasing an apocalyptic cloud of soot and cinders. Whatever happens to the bit players, they never make it anywhere near Kilby. Nero is in the middle of it, defending his booth from all comers. He might be the only punter not enjoying himself, throwing punches with a grim professionalism. The fight has forgotten Kilby, who pulls Theo beneath the table and offers her a cigarette. She declines. Given the air quality, just breathing in this pub amounts to chain-smoking. Kilby lights his own, adjusts his tie, and props himself up on an elbow, a rake in repose, faintly amused by the rumble around him. Time to leave, I think. You did that on purpose. Well, the trick is to make it look intentional, or do I mean accidental? What about your friend? Nero, well, he can look after himself. We'll stay low and make for the bar. Connie can let us out the back. You've done this before, only twice this week. She wonders if he is joking. He will often make her wonder. He departs in a crouched crab walk. She follows. Waiting at the bar, Constance flips open the counter to let them through. She has already pulled up the hatch leading down to the cellar. I hope you realise this has nothing to do with me, Kilby says, straightening his coat. Did I say it was? I felt an accusation pending. Constance nods at Theo. Where'd you find that one? Well, I don't think we can blame her, either. Constance isn't watching. She reaches for the brass bell set above the cash register and whips the cord. The bell tolls in a high whine that seems to send visible shivers through the air, a rippling chill that instantly seems to quell the riot. The landlady hollers, Time, gentlemen, please! The fight staggers and slows. Men fall away from each other, bloodied and panting. The noise slurs and fades. And as Thea watches, as the bell keeps ringing, the fight is undone. Chairs gather their pieces and tuck themselves below tables that right themselves. The fireplace inhales ash and cinder. Smashed glasses crystallise into goblets and pints. The shattered front window sucks back pavement debris into a smooth pane. 
slashed seats knit themselves invisible stitches. The fighters look around at all this order and repair and can't find the point in continuing. In quiet accord, they gather their things and start to head for the door. Former enemies slap each other on the back and look forward to next time. Kilby drops down through the open hatch. Constance sees Theo hesitate. You better make sure he keeps his head down. Don't want things kicking off again. You know I'm not responsible for him. Give it time. Theo drops, pleased to discover the fall is only a metre or so onto a hydraulic lift. Kilby is waiting with a hand to help her down to the floor before rushing to the ladder at the other side of the room. He scales the rungs, heaves open the hatch at the top, and, checking the way is clear, climbs out. Looking right, Theo can see the punters milling out of the pub's front door. Most make their way through the insect arch. There is the bus stop, but the three witches have fled. Shouldn't we be going that way? she says as Kilby peels away to the left. She realises the fistfight up the street that she saw earlier is still going, the two men hitting each other with bored, clumsy blows. Oh, don't fret, it's a small manner. Getting in is the hard bit, you can get out anywhere you like. Sure enough, before the next corner, the clear, quiet night gives way to thin rain, loud neon, and the familiar thrum of traffic. It happens so quickly that Theo doesn't spot the join. Looking back, there is no sign of the manor, only the Albion in its bland and renovated glory. Even from here, she can hear the faded murmur of a Coldplay album. They are no longer wherever they were. Theo figures she should be happy about that. Instead, the thought gives her a cold jolt. There was a phone box here, outside the pub. Yes, every manor has one. All connected, you never know when you might need a lift. A black cab is waiting for them at the curb. Nero leans out of the driver's window. His nose is running and his eyes watering. I ain't hanging about. He sneezes twice. <laughs> and mind the cats. Kilby sees Theo hesitate. Change your mind? I don't know, she says. There is something about the reality of a car waiting. The surrender of getting into a vehicle with two boys she doesn't know and can't trust. Years of training against stranger danger have made the red flags hard to miss. Maybe this isn't a great idea? Oh, it's a terrible idea. But those are my favourite. He steps back to let her open the rear door. After you. Theo doesn't have to get into this car with these men. She could walk off now, into the rain. Forget about Josh. That would probably be sensible. But she can't picture it. She has come this far, like it or not. These two still seem her best chance of finding him. Okay, as long as you're not, you know, planning to murder me and dump me in the Thames. To the right he is. This might pass for a joke. Kilby presses the palm to his shirt in mock affront. Jones, we would never dump you in the Thames. Oh, good? Nah, Nero says. The canal's much closer. <laughs> Theo says. As she opens the cab door, a Siamese bolts past her shins out onto the pavement. She attempts to scoop it up, but the thing is all liquid and hair, melting through her fingers. Gone. Nero swears into his handkerchief. I told you to mind the bleeding cats! You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk. Book One, How to Disappear Completely. Written and performed by Mike Bartlett. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, check out salmonandusk.com. been listening 
to a burnt toast production.